Our sermon text this morning is actually from the Old Testament, so we will begin this morning with our gospel lesson, which comes from Matthew chapter 5. It's the very beginning of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16, which can be found on page 785 in our Pew Bibles, or 1505 in the large print. And as Jesus begins uh, to let people know how his kingdom is not the same as all the other kingdoms of the world, how he's a very different king and what his relationship will be like with his people and what, um, what life will be like in his kingdom. He begins in a strange way. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We pray that this morning that you would open our ears, that we would hear it properly. Pray that you would work in our minds, that we would understand it properly. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would receive it properly, that we would be changed by your word and by your spirit into the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew tells us in chapter 5, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Turning then to our New Testament lesson, all the way to the, the back of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, which can be found on page 1004 in your pew Bibles, or 1937 in the large print. This is the vision given to John. And he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yesterday, two of my sons and I watched a movie together. It was one that we had been kind of planning for for some time. It's one where we needed the younger kids to not be around. And uh, one where we had several hours because it's a long movie. It is uh, the third of the Lord of the Rings movies, The Return of the King. This is one that I had seen before and they hadn't, and it was nice to get to share that experience with them. Um, But one of the things that was fascinating about watching that with them is how um, the reactions to the tense situations were different between me and them. One of them said afterwards, you know, that is a long movie, and it was really intense the whole way through. I mean, you're just always on the edge of your seat. Or at least they were. I wasn't. The reason I wasn't, though, and this is the difference, is I'd already seen the ending. And so I knew who survives to the end of the movie and who doesn't. And so when somebody gets into a life-threatening situation, and they're like, oh, no, are they going to make it? One of them actually asked me at one point, is this like Hamlet? Not to spoil it for you, it's... You know, 400 years old or something. He says, is this like Hamlet where everybody dies at the end? <laughs> well, it's not. And so there would be a situation where somebody is really life-threatening situation. They'd be hanging on the edge of their seat. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I know they make it. Yeah, I mean, I remember how in this particular scene, but I know they're in the end of the, end of the film, so I, I know it's going to be <laughs> all right. The reason we read, uh, read from Revelation there is because we have already been told the end. And if we already know what the end of the story is, if we know that in the end, God will win, that evil doesn't win, it changes how we respond and react to the situations that we live through where evil seems to be winning. And that is our question for today. You know, How do we trust in God when evil seems to be winning? And you can come up with all sorts of examples as far as evil seeming to be winning, whether that's a personal kind of thing, evil seeming to be winning in your own personal life where you have uh, friends or family members who are um, going the wrong direction or who are you know, betraying those closest to them. Or you may have this at you know, your workplace where it seems like those who do right always end up on the bottom and those who do wrong always seem to go to the top. Or it may be in our culture that is becoming more and more clearly a post-Christian culture where the culture at large is no longer being influenced uh, 
by those who are genuinely Christian and Christian values, but it is being more and more influenced by a secular system or at least a system of (laughs) pluralism. And so we look at example after example everywhere we look and we say, wait a second, I thought... I thought that the way it's supposed to work is that you do good things and then God will make sure good things happen to you. And if you do bad things, he will make sure that bad things happen to you. And then I look around the world and it doesn't seem that that's the way it works. And here's why. Because that's not the way it works. <laughs> that, is what it, that idea basically is uh, given the name of karma. You may have heard this, and I will just tell you quite plainly, karma and Christianity have nothing in common. Nothing. The idea in karma, you do good things, good things will happen to you. You do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And it just all balances out in the end, and so you want to make sure you do good things so that good things will happen to you. Christianity (laughs) operates entirely on grace, which is we do bad things, and God does good things for us. And we're going to get on to the passage for today before I get too far <laughs> too far gone on this. Um, and this is, this is a psalm that we're going to look at, uh, just the first 11 verses of it, because it is really helpful to me personally. I found this very helpful. I hope you do as well. Uh, in knowing how to respond, how to react in situations where you look around and it says, evil seems to be winning. It really does. Um, so what do we do? So this is Psalm 37 of David, and he begins the psalm this way. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while. And the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. All right. There's a lot in here. And time is short. So we'll begin at the beginning. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Right there, we have two very common reactions when evil seems to be winning. One is the reaction of fretting, of worry, but not just worry, but getting really worked up and excited to be, somebody's got to do something. That's what this reaction is. This is the fretting. We've got to do something. I don't know what to do. I've got to do something. He says, don't do that. I'll tell you why in a second. The other temptation, though, is to look at the, you know, evil seems to be winning and going, well... Can't beat them, join them. If that's the way that it seems that the whole world is going, I want to be on the winning side, I'll just join up with those as well. Just get carried along by that cultural tide, even if it's evil. 
It says don't do that either. And the main reason why it says not to do either one of those things, the main reason, and it kind of comes back through there a few times, I don't know if you notice that, but it's because it says that for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. I don't think he's talking about, you know, like seasonal changes where in the fall the uh, plants die. I think he's talking more like Jesus was in the parable of the, the four soils and you put the seed down and there's some that seems to sprout up quickly but it has no root, and therefore it dies. The sun comes up, the heat, and the scorching wind, and the plant withers because it has no root. I think that's what David's talking about. Because those who are evil don't have roots that go down into anything that's life-giving, therefore they can't last. And therefore, it's temporary. And so, if it's temporary, don't worry about it, don't stress about it, fret about it, because it won't win in the end. And two, don't join up with it. Don't be envious of it and go, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I were the one in power. I wish I could just you know, do the things that those people are doing and get away with it like they seem to be doing. Says, no, don't do that either because it's temporary. It will not last. Um, we read there at Revelation you know, about things burning up and it's like, it is. I don't know if you want to read that part. But it's important. There are things that last and there are things that don't. And, uh, Diana, I'm glad you're back because I may need you to correct me on something here in a second. I'm going to retell my understanding of one of her clay projects she used to do with her students in class, which is to make these little balls out of clay that have another little ball, a smaller ball, inside that then it's a hollow... Anyway. Yeah, it's like a chime. So you rattle it around and it... Makes little noises. It's fun. Um, but here's how that works. You don't make a ball and then try to get the other one in there. That's no good. You make the two halves, and then you stick the ball in there, and you close it up, make sure you poke a hole for the air to get out, and you put it in the kiln, and it all hardens. Except, if you do it that way, there will be no jingling noise when you're done. Because the little ball on the inside will stick to the edge of the bigger ball that it's inside of, and then when it's in the kiln, it'll all harden together, and it'll just be one piece, and there's no jingling. So what do you do? You take the two halves, you already have, then you take your smaller ball and you wrap it in wet paper towels. You wrap it in there, then you put it inside the ball, you seal it all up, poke the hole in the air for air, you put it in the kiln, and then the fire comes on. And when the fire's on and it all heats up, they're the same fire, the same environment, the same situation, but two very different responses. The clay gets hard. The wet paper towel first dries out and then burns up to nothing but ash. And so then, out of that little air hole, you, may, <laughs> you sprinkle a little ash out and you're left with a little jingling uh, piece of clay. Very hard. The jingle is not soft anymore. Same fire, same environment. Two very different responses. When we look at Revelation 21, we see what's there, what remains, what lasts, what is uh, permanent. We also see what's not there anymore. What we see is not there anymore is evil and all of the consequences of evil. Those things don't last. They're not there. And this is what, uh, if we can keep that in mind, it's like seeing the end of the story that then in the middle of the story when we see situations come up and we go, I don't know how this is going to turn out. No, I don't know how this is going to turn out. But I know the end of the story. I know how the whole thing turns out. I know the things that are going to be still left, and I know the things that aren't. 
I know that we are going to be with God and he's going to be with us. And there will be no more sickness and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. For the old order of things will have passed away, will have burned up. And so David reminds us, do not fret because of those who are evil. Do not be envious of those who do wrong. For like the green, for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. So what is it that we're supposed to do instead? And we see this all the time uh, throughout the Bible. It's, you know, it's not just a don't do these things. But here's what to do instead. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Now, there are several times that this trust in the Lord thing sort of keeps coming back. He says, here are some other ones. Uh, Take delight in the Lord. Uh, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. We have over and over and over. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. We have... uh, Sorry. Um... At Backyard Bible Club, we have two rules, which I also stole from Diana's art class. Which is a lot of like today. Um, the two rules: one is respect everyone, everything, and yourself. That's rule number one. Rule number two: have fun. The reason, and we say this every time we mention the rules, the reason there's rule number one and rule number two is because they have to go in that order, or none of it works. They have to go in that order. If you decide you're just going to follow rule number one and then see about rule, or rule number two and then see about rule number one, if you're just going to go out there and have fun without respecting other people, you're not going to be following the respect rule, but you're also not going to be able to have fun for very long. That's going to get cut short pretty fast. They have to go in that order. And if they go in that order, if everybody's respecting everyone, everything in themselves, then it actually frees us up to follow rule number two and to have fun. I think that the reason that uh, David says, trust in the Lord and do good in that order is because they have to go in that order. They have to. If we go out and we just try to do good and say something's got to be done and so I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something about this, I'm going to go out there and do it, I'm going to be the one who does good. First of all, that means we're the ones who are deciding what is good and what is not. And second of all, we are putting it all on our shoulders as though it has to be on us. And I'm, I got, I hate to break it to us, but um, God doesn't need us to do anything. He can do all of it by himself. All of it. He doesn't need us to do anything. Does he choose to use us? Absolutely. Does he call us to do specific things? Yes, he does. Does he invite us to join with him in what he's doing? Yes. But if we ever start thinking, God doesn't know what he's doing, therefore I'm going to do it. We're probably on the wrong track. This is why David says we've got to start with trusting God. One of the things he says in here, um, this, take delight in the Lord. Is that the way it puts it? This translation, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Have you heard that verse before? completely ripped out of context and misinterpreted. (laughs) Which goes right back to what we talked about last week. Do we have a relationship with God that is more like a child with a loving father, or do we have a relationship with God as though he is our heavenly vending machine, that if we can just push the right buttons, he'll give us what we really want, which is not him. 
And what this is saying, just like when we're talking about prayer last week, you know, if we want to have our prayers answered, we need to make sure we're praying for the right things. And this is saying, if you want to receive what you really want, make sure you're wanting the right things. This is where Jesus says, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Don't go after the other things or you won't get either. Um, I think it's C.S. Lewis says something similar where he says, if you aim at the world, get this all mixed up, but it's something like this. If you aim at heaven, you get the earth thrown in, but if you aim at earth, you get neither. Something like that. He says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This does not mean if we push the right buttons with him, he'll give us something else that we want. What it's saying is, if he is, where, if he is what we want more than anything else, if that's where our real delight is, if that's where our real joy comes from, if that's what we want more than anything else, he says, I will give you myself. And if you desire me above everything else, then you will receive from me the desires of your heart. It all comes back to trusting God, trusting God, trusting God, loving him, wanting him more than anything else. And the rest kind of takes care of itself. Um, I'll share four stories briefly. One is a guy by the name of Moses. Maybe you've heard of him. He was in... Uh, in Egypt, a long time ago. And he was uh, Hebrew by birth, but he's been raised as an Egyptian, and he looks out and he sees that the Hebrews are being mistreated by the Egyptians. And he says, I'm going to do something about this. Obviously, God doesn't know what he's doing, or he would have stopped it by now, but no, he didn't, so it's going to be up to me. And he steps in, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he goes in, and he gets in the way, and he kills the Egyptian. That ought to teach him. That ought to really make the situation better for the Hebrews, right? No, actually, it doesn't. It does not stop the problem. It actually makes the problem worse, both for the Hebrews and for Moses himself, who then has to flee for his life. It spends 40 years out in the desert. You know what happens to Moses after that? It's probably the part you're more familiar with. God calls him back to actually free the Hebrews from the oppression of the Egyptians. But when he comes back, it's a different Moses. When he comes back, he's no longer the one who comes in and says, here's what I'm going to do to fix it. When he comes back, he is coming back as a servant of God who says whatever God tells him to say and who does whatever God tells him to do. And in that even though he's doing things now that make far less sense. It seems like the correct response would be, yeah, go get those Egyptians. <laughs> but God has a different plan. And once Moses joins up with the plan that God has, things change. So he learns to trust God while he's in the desert, and because he's trusting God, he's able to do good. Second person. A guy by the name of Paul. Paul in the New Testament, who, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he said, he was one who was actually standing there giving his approval to um, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was standing there giving his approval because he had thought that he was doing the right thing by God. He had decided he knew what good was. And like all the Pharisees that Jesus kept getting on to, he was, had it all right on the outside. Jesus said, you know, you are whitewashed tombs. 
You look so good on the outside, like you're doing all these good things for God, and yet on the inside you have no relationship with him. You're like a tomb full of rotting, dead corpse. This was where Paul was. But doing the good thing, he goes out there and he says, we're going to get rid of all these Christians. And so he's going around trying to find them, arrest them, have them put in prison. When they start stoning Stephen, he's there giving his approval, saying, yes, that's the right thing to do in the situation. But it wasn't. It wasn't. And in fact, um, (laughs) Stephen's response is amazing. He doesn't fight back at all. He stands there and preaches and then dies. But what's fascinating is if anybody had been looking on to that scene, they would have said something's got to be done about Paul, this Saul Paul guy. Somebody's got to do something, and that's exactly right. And somebody did do something. Jesus knocks him down on the road to Damascus, blinds him, and he comes to know Jesus, and he meets him, and Jesus changes his life from the inside out, and he becomes the guy who ends up writing more of the books of the New Testament than anybody else. He goes around planting churches, planting churches for Jesus all around the Mediterranean, from modern-day Israel up to modern-day Italy, everywhere in between. But not because he was going to do big things, not because he was going to do good, but because he had finally understood what it meant to join up with what God was already doing, to be used by him as he had a relationship with him through Jesus. Here's another one. A guy by the name of Peter. Maybe you've heard of him. One of Jesus' closest disciples. And on the night when one of his other close disciples approached him in a garden with a group of soldiers and went over and gave Jesus a kiss on the cheek. Greetings, Rabbi. And we look at that situation and we say, that is evil. And we know what's coming next, and Peter could see it coming too, that Jesus is getting ready to be not only betrayed by one of his closest friends, but also put through a court system that is not interested in justice, but only interested in everybody keeping their power where it is. And then Peter knows if somebody doesn't do something, Jesus is going to be killed. And Peter says, I'm going to do something. And so he pulls out his sword, and he goes after the high priest's servant, and he Cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, No. That's not how this works. That's not how we're going to do this. And even in the middle of Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends, of being arrested, Luke tells us he actually touches the man's ear and heals him. Even in that scene. But you know what? Peter was right. Peter was right to think that if somebody doesn't do something, Jesus is going to be killed. And Peter got stopped, and nobody else did anything, and Jesus was killed. Here's where he was wrong. Peter thought if Jesus gets killed, evil wins. And from a worldly perspective, we are often tempted to think the exact same thing when we are faced with evil situations. But here's what happened. Jesus did get killed, and evil did not win. Three days later, as God raises Jesus from the dead, we see that that is actually Jesus' victory over evil and death. And what it means for us now is that the victory has already been won. We know the end of the story. And therefore, 
even when we don't understand how things are going to work out, we know they are going to work out. Even when it seems like evil is winning, we know that evil can't win. It's already been defeated. And what that does is it frees us up actually to do good. We see Peter later preaching at Pentecost and thousands of people are, uh, are saved. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him. He will do this. Um, back to those two things in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. One of the possible ways of hearing this, though, is saying, you know, making it sound like, okay, so if God is in charge, if he's the one doing everything, everything's going to work out in the end, that means we do nothing. There's nothing for us to do. He doesn't need us to do anything anyway, so we're not going to do anything. But that's not what it says, is it? It doesn't say trust in God and sit back and relax. He's got it. Don't worry. It does say we can not worry about it. But we trust him, and then out of that, we do good. We get involved. When we see situations that are evil, we don't sit back and do nothing, but we stand in the face of it. And we are there in the face of it as representatives of good in the midst of the evil, of light in the midst of the darkness. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say stand back and do nothing. He does say don't retaliate. But we stand in the face of evil for good. The only way we can do that is if we already believe that God has the victory. If we believe that it's not all about us, that it doesn't all rest on our shoulders, that all rested on Jesus and he won. And so we can join up with the winning side, but not by setting out to do good, but by setting out to trust God. And in doing that, then flowing from it and through it, we do good. Jesus said in uh, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, You can do nothing. We saw what happened when Moses tried it apart from God. We saw what happened when Paul tries to do good apart from God. We saw what happened when Peter tried to do good, even, you know, right there with Jesus, for Jesus, but really apart from him, doing it on his own. But we also see what happens when people submit to God and say, I don't understand your way. It doesn't seem like the most politically expedient thing to do. It doesn't seem like the way that's going to work in this world. And that's where Jesus says, doesn't have to work in this world. My kingdom is different than the things of this world. If you really believe that, if you really trust me, even when you can't see the end, know that it's there. Know that I've already won. Walk with me. Delight in me. Have constant fellowship with me. And in doing that, you will be an agent for good in this world and a representative of the kingdom of God wherever we go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.